Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our 10th episode, Real Clear Policy's Tony Mills talks with Brookings Institution's Bill Gale about tax reform. And Real Clear Defense editor David Gregg talks with Medine Gershin, a columnist for Al Monitor's Turkey Pulse about the Middle East. First up, Tony talks with Bill Gale about the upcoming tax reforming battle in Congress. Welcome to the Real Clear Politics podcast series, The First 100 Days. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy. And with me today to discuss tax reform is Bill Gale. Bill is the R.J. and Francis Miller Chair in Federal Economic Policy and Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and Co-Director of the Tax Policy Center. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. So in light of the health care debacle, uh, GOP leadership has signaled that tax reform is next on the agenda. Uh, can you tell me what, what can we expect from this Congress and this White House in, in terms of policy proposals on tax reform? start off on a little bit of a snarky note, but I think an accurate note. I think that regardless of what they do, regardless of what they call it, health care reform, tax care reform, tax reform, uh, agricultural reform, regardless of what they call it, it's going to end up being tax cuts for high-income households. That's what we saw in um, in health care reform, which, which contained very large cuts for, for the wealthy. That's what we see in the House blueprint proposal. Uh, that's what we see in particular in Trump's proposal uh, in the, during the presidential campaign. So there will be some discussion of tax reform, which involves changing the structure of taxation and paying for the tax cuts that you want. Uh, but I think ultimately uh, they will coalesce around uh, tax cuts rather than tax reform, because I don't think... Uh, I don't think there's the political will right now to uh, create the losers or create the pay-fors that tax reform would require. So I want to get a little bit more into the distinction between tax cuts and tax reform uh, that that you allude to there. But before doing that, what are areas, uh, thinking in terms of tax cuts, what are areas of obvious agreement um, within the GOP, do you think? Uh, is it cor- corporate tax cuts? Uh, where are we most likely to see agreement? And, and where might there be disagreement? I think the agreement is probably more on the individual income tax side, that they want to cut rates. Uh, the disagreement is pretty much everywhere else. Uh, the, in particular, uh, the House blueprint proposal for a destination-based cash flow tax would totally change the nature of corporate taxation. Uh, Trump's proposal would simply cut the rate uh, on corporate on corporations. So, so uh, there's a there's a big difference to to cover on how they approach corporate uh, uh, and business income taxation. I think there's less of a difference uh, on how the House and the White House would approach. Uh, individual taxation, and we and we haven't really heard anything from the Senate on what they would want to do. Yeah, well, could you talk a little bit more about that uh, so-called border adjustment tax, or what's sometimes referred to as the border adjustment tax, and and how does that fit into the broader picture? Why is that idea on the table now? What is it trying to do, and what are the likely disagreements about it? Sure, the border. 
border adjustment tax can only be understood in the context of the bigger proposal that it, it is a part of, the destination-based uh, cash flow tax. What, what, uh, uh, what moving to a cash flow tax does is uh, uh, remove the distortions to investment uh, that the current system has. And then by adding a border adjustment, uh, you basically make the tax a tax on U.S. consumption uh, rather than basically through a border adjustment, you exempt exports and you tax imports. Mm-hmm. And under a consumption tax, that makes perfect sense because exports are not consumed here, but imports are. So the cash flow part of the tax is a tax on production in the United States, but by border adjusting, you change the tax on production to a tax on consumption. And uh, the idea is that the, the tax would be a tax on consumption, except that wages uh, uh, are allowed to be deducted, so it would be a tax on consumption that is paid for uh, some way other than with wages. So it would be, uh, that would introduce an element of permissivity into the into the destination-based cash flow tax. So effectively, this would be a way to uh, to offset the the corporate tax cuts. Is that is that correct? The border adjustment. Yes. Uh, no, it's really more a. It's just it's a part of the of the system. It's a, uh, every country in the world has value-added taxes, uh, which are basically domestic consumption taxes. Uh, all those countries border adjust their value added tax so that things that are consumed in the country are subject to the tax and things that are consumed outside of the country are not subject uh, to the tax. The Republicans, the House GOP proposal, the destination based cash flow tax, is a value added tax, but unlike other value added taxes, it also allows. Sorry. Unlike other value-added taxes, it also allows a deduction for for wages. Right. Many conservatives, uh, members of the House Freedom Caucus, for example, have expressed uh, concerns with this. Can, what's the uh, what's the argument there? What's the underlying dispute uh, within the party about this proposal? Uh, people's concern with the border adjustment is that by taxing imports, you would raise the price of imported goods and that that would hurt uh, retailers who import a lot of their goods, uh, you know, car dealers, the oil industry, the apparel industry, and the people who buy those things. Uh, Now, um, the response is that the exchange rate should adjust, the dollar should go up in value in a way that the, um, uh, the net price of imports doesn't change. Uh, but uh, many economists believe that, but most non-economists don't, and certainly nobody in the affected industry uh, is willing to bet that the exchange rate will adjust. So you get a very strong opposition to cash to destination-based taxes to, to, to the border adjustment uh, from the from industries who import a lot. So it sounds like, in addition to the underlying philosophical disagreements uh, within the party, there may be uh, genuine political challenges with, with getting that kind of proposal through. Do, are, is it, do you see any reason to think that this uh, 
negotiation about tax cuts or tax reform um, will play out differently than the health care uh, debacle? Is there any reason to think that it will be different, more likely to be able to get something done, or how, how do you see that taking place? Well, there's no doubt that tax reform is complicated. Uh, I think uh, ultimately they're going to find that they don't have the the fortitude to raise the revenue that's needed to pay for the tax cuts they want to pursue. And so I think they'll end up just pursuing tax cuts. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, we should say the economy doesn't need tax cuts right now. Uh, and especially deficit finance tax cuts would then um, boost the debt. In the, in the health care reform bill, they tried to pass tax cuts for the rich and finance it by cuts in uh, uh, health insurance for low- and middle-income households. Uh, that didn't work, so they'd have to find some other uh, revenue source if they wanted to do actual reform, uh, which I think is going to prove very difficult uh, to do. So, so stepping back a little bit and, and again, thinking about this uh distinction between tax reform and tax cuts. How, how exactly does the uh, attempt to repeal or replace the Affordable Care Act uh, relate to tax reform? What, what, what was the reasoning behind Speaker Ryan's attempt to do one first, you know, specifically in terms of the policy proposals? How are these two things connected specifically to this issue of uh, the deficit? Well, I think the, in the Health Care Reform Act, they wanted to uh, cut taxes for the rich. There's a couple of a couple of different taxes, uh, and they wanted to finance that by cutting Medicaid spending and cutting uh, health insurance subsidies. Uh, that didn't work. So they, if they want to cut those taxes, they have to find another source of financing uh, uh, to pay for those tax cuts. If they want to, if they decide they actually want to pay for the tax cuts. Uh, but I think the bigger damage is political. Uh, uh, my sense of the health care reform situation was Ryan went to the White House. Well, Paul Ryan went to the White House and said, I got this organized. Let me just deal with this. And the White House said, okay. And then the House didn't come through on the vote. And so, so um, I think the White House is going to take much more ownership of the tax reform process and uh, uh, that means uh, you have another player not just the House GOP plan but whatever the White House comes up with and then you have the Senate weighing in too so I think politically in, in terms of the arithmetic it's clear that the health care reform took one way of financing their tax cuts off the table and that just makes it harder because they have to find other ways of financing but in terms of the politics, I think it also made it much more complicated, uh, the, the notion that the House might lead the tax reform effort uh, doesn't doesn't seem right at this point. It seems like the White House will be much more involved. So the White House will step in and try to, to be more involved in the actual uh, legislative process, maybe uh, uh, making it more likely that they don't repeat uh, what happened with health care. So uh, there's been a lot of discussion around the, the health care debacle about the budget reconciliation process, and, and you've mentioned uh, that the GOP is looking for ways to uh, pay for their tax cuts and 
that this is going to be more difficult now. Um, so is it is it right to say that or do you think it's likely or unavoidable that the, that the GOP will use the same budget reconciliation process to try to get uh, this t tax uh, these tax proposals through? And um, is it likely um, or is is it likely that they could have a revenue neutral? Uh, plan, or is what you're saying that revenue neutral is pretty much off the table um, and the GOP is most likely to get um, some short-term tax cuts? Uh, so it, let's just go through the options. If they have a bipartisan tax plan, they don't need to go through reconciliation, uh, and then they can, they can cut taxes on a permanent basis. Uh, but it seems unlikely, either, unlikely to me that they're going to get Democratic support. And without Democratic support, they would have to go through reconciliation. What that means is the House, the, uh, the House and the Senate passed budget resolutions that have in them uh, target levels for tax revenues. And then uh, any legislation that's consistent with that uh, can be uh, put up for vote uh, in both houses. But in the Senate in particular, and not be subject to filibuster, mm -hmm. so they can they uh, so it can pass with majority vote rather than uh, the the sixty you need to avoid a filibuster in regular legislation. So, uh, but if they do that, then they can't cut the deficit after they can't increase the deficit after ten years. So um, uh, it's a trade off, and um, reconciliation is was originally meant to help speed up deficit-reducing measures, uh, but they're using it, uh, they would be using it to to generate tax cuts. Uh, and so uh, it's a tricky process. Uh, they would need almost everyone on board because they only have a, a slight majority in the Senate uh, as possible, but, but uh, it's going to, you know, they need to, Read the needle very carefully. Mark Meadows of the House Freedom Caucus and others have have expressed uh, skepticism about the need to to have revenue neutral tax reform, and they seem more interested in uh, getting through the tax cuts. Um, is it? Do you think it's likely that that uh, a revenue neutral plan is going to make it through, or do you think uh, Speaker Ryan will try to compromise with the more conservative wing of his party to? pass temporary cuts? Uh, that depends totally on whether it's a bipartisan package or not. If it's just the Republicans, uh, they're not going to do the base broadeners and loophole closers and, and things like that that would be required for tax reform uh, simply because you know they would be putting a target on their back saying, hey, we're the guys who took away all your benefits. Uh, in 1986, when we did broaden the base and eliminate a lot of loopholes and exclusions and deductions, it was a bipartisan effort. And so each side could sort of blame the other side and say, well, we really didn't want to do this, but the other guys made us do this. Uh, but it's, but it's, a, it's a big stretch to think that one party uh, would unilaterally uh, make those cuts, make those uh, tax increases on its own. So I'm fairly sure that if it's just a Republican effort, uh, it's going to end up being a uh, just a tax cut. So thinking a little bit, uh, you know, 
stepping back again, is it possible to just go back to the drawing board and to uh, tackle health care first and to to get the uh, the kind of tax cuts that the Republicans wanted there and then proceed to do a broader tax reform package? Or is that just politically not viable? Uh, or is there any reason why that's something that can't be on the table anymore? Uh, I don't see a political reason why they, or I, I don't see a logical reason why they can't raise this, the same proposals again. Uh, uh, they may want to shy away from that given the non-agreement, but uh, I don't, you know, they can, they can raise whatever proposals they, they want to. Now it sounds like in many ways the, the political situation uh, reflects the same debates uh, and the underlying tensions that we, we've been seeing so far with the added difficulty of uh, having not successfully uh, passed this first major health care bill, which you know, may weaken the political will uh, a little bit, make it more difficult for Trump or Ryan to cajole the party into passing something that they like. Uh, what, what would you? What do you think is most likely here? What's the most li- likely outcome? I mean, it's difficult to prognosticate in this political climate, but what do you see as a as a likely a- outcome for tax policy given this political climate? The likely outcome is that high-income households will get a tax cut, and it might be disguised in any of a variety of ways. But uh, that, if you look at all the Republican proposals, that's what they all have in common. Uh, there may be some bones thrown at the middle class, uh, but uh, I think if you look at the proposal carefully, you'll find tax cuts for high-income households. Do you see corporate tax cuts as a, as a piece of that? Uh, Certainly, if we just cut the rate to uh, 15%, like Trump has proposed, uh, you'd see uh, a couple of things. One is the corporate burdens would be lower, which would end up uh, benefiting mainly capital holders. Uh, And uh, there would be a big incentive for high-income households to shift to recharacterize their income from wages to to business income, uh, and thereby reduce their taxes uh, from the higher wage rate that they pay to the lower business tax that would have been enacted. What what would you say or estimate the potential impact on the economy? Some of these possible outcomes might be. Obviously, the the, t- the Trump administration is is touting their proposal as as boosting the economy. You know, removing the tax burden uh, is is that likely, or do you see this as only skewing toward the upper uh, income earners? Or what are the possible economic effects that you see? There's a lot of wishful thinking about uh, about how great tax cuts will be for the economy. Uh, in certain circumstances, like when we're in a recession, tax cuts can be very helpful. They stimulate aggregate demand. They stimulate spending. Uh, that's all well and good. Uh, we're not in one of those situations right now. So uh, the effects on the tax cut on the economy, uh, obviously it depends on the specific nature of the tax cut. Uh, I think if we went with a cash flow tax, uh, we would generate some moderate growth over the medium and long term. But I think if we're just talking about playing with rates and the income tax, uh, uh, the uh, commonly discussed Republican view that this would be a great boom to growth. I 
think is just wrong. The, uh, the historical evidence says otherwise. A lot of things affect the growth rate of the economy. Tax rates are not that big of a deal uh, compared to other factors. And so uh, I just don't see uh, that we're going to get a lot of growth, especially in the short run, out of the Trump plan. I think we might get uh, more medium and long-term growth out of the cash flow tax. Well, it'll be a fascinating debate to follow, and it uh, seems that the stakes may be high for the GOP when it comes to tax reform, as it was with health, health policy. Bill Gell, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Now, David talks with Mateen about what's happening in the Middle East. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm honored to have with me today Mateen Gershon, a columnist for All Monitor and also an ex-military uh, Turkish military officer uh, who actually studied here in the United States at the Naval War College. He's going to discuss with us today the current U.S.-Turkey relations and other issues involving security in the region and the future of U.S.-Turkey relations. Thank you so much uh, for being with us, uh, Mateen. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for having me. Uh, first question I have, of course, that's a hot topic this week, is uh, the fact that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is on his way to Turkey, I believe, on Thursday for a meeting. Uh, the primary impetus for this meeting, apparently, is to discuss the Syrian situation, how to combat ISIS, the greater Syria problem, and then specifically how to incorporate support for the Kurdish YPG within Syria, which, of course, is sort of a sore point from the Turkish perspective. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, sir. I mean, uh, Secretary Tillerson is uh, visiting Turkey on March 13th, as you said, uh, surely with an full-size briefcase having uh, thick files. <laughs> so his uh, visits uh, will be highest level since uh, the President Trump took office in January. And Ankara, despite uh, President Trump's unpredictable moves, such as the Muslim ban and the recent ban on electronic devices on flights from Atatürk Istanbul airport to the U.S., uh, Ankara still wants to hold high hope of new Trump administration. So uh, Tillerson's visit uh, is, is an important one. But I have to start with a general analysis to better contextualize his visit. You know, right now, all state actors, uh, such as the U.S. and Russia at the global level, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi-led GCC countries at the regional level, and sub-state actors, Iraq and Syrian Kurds, Sunni and Shia factions, and all those religious minorities living in Syria and in Iraq at the local level, they all have a sort of a revisionist stance for post-ISIS setting. So simply all state and non-state actors, they seem not to want to turn back to the pre-ISIS status quo. And thus, they seek to assert their agency to dominate the post-ISIS setting. So. Uh, this post-ISIS setting is emerging as a sort of uh, domain driven by zero-sum game. So in the midst of all things, uh, Tillerson, Secretary Tillerson, is coming to Turkey, I think, to discuss these uh, details about the post-ISIS uh, setting uh, with uh, Turkey. And also, let me emphasize this, uh, we see a sort of getting increasingly visible a visible rift between Turkey and the Western security bloc in general, and Turkey and the U.S. in particular. 
And this rift, driven by unpredictability, ambiguity, and serious crisis of confidence, uh, so I would say that this uh, certainly turned into a sort of worst crisis between the U.S. and Turkey since 2003. So uh, we will see whether he would, uh, how can I say, present a sort of uh, good roadmap, uh, including the U.S. and states in Syria and Iraq, and how U.S. would offer uh, its, uh, you know, order uh, to set the stage in the post-ISIS setting. So this is the main issue, I think, that will be discussed in his visit. Okay. Now, in some of the media reporting from the states, I think Reuters today said that the Kurdish YPG would be a big discussion. They're suggesting that Turkey is uh, interested in advocating for other uh, Syrian democratic forces. However, some U.S. officials claim that they aren't large enough or, or well-armed enough to pose a, a significant challenge. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, Tillerson's visit uh, comes amid uh, long-standing tensions between the United States and Turkey over U.S. plans to pursue its alliance with PKK-affiliated YPG forces in the north of Syria. I mean, YPG is the Kurdish armed group dominating the U.S. Uh, local partner, uh, Syrian Democratic Forces right now, uh, the combat-proven uh, forces in the fight against ISIS. And this uh, Syrian Democratic Forces will be the prime force in the uh, anticipated uh, Raqqa offense. So Turkey wants the U.S. to scrap its ties with the YPG, suggesting that the YPG is linked to PKK, and which is on the Tillerson's departments of the list of terrorist organizations. Right. And uh, right now, uh, PKK has been fighting a four decades long blood insurgency inside Turkey. This is a green fact. And in Ankara, that is perceived as uh, the U.S. prefers the PKK to us and right. uh, causing deep uh, mistrust. And all, but all sides on the field, however, indicate that Ankara could not provide Washington a workable plan excluding YPG for the anticipated Raqqa offense so far. Ankara proposed, I think, uh, around uh, four uh, different plans for the Raqqa offense and uh, wanted uh, the U.S. to exclude YPG. Uh, but uh, uh, if you look at the facts on the ground, uh, Ankara could not provide Washington a workable plan, as I said before. And I think Tillerson's visit will thus be the Ankara's last chance to persuade the U.S. Because after his visit, I think we will see the uh, full initiation of the Raqqa offense. Oh, so do you also see Tillerson's visit as a new era in U.S.-Turkish relations in the era of President Trump then? That's right. Uh, I mean, I would say, uh, I mean, right now, uh, the 2016 was a tough year if you assess the strategic relationship between U.S. and uh, uh, Turkey. And as I said before, uh, uh, the very, very, very first dynamic uh, shaping the uh, relationship is the uh, military uprising in July 15. And I would say that uh, for Turkey, uh, the post-July 15 setting, uh, this is a military uprising for me. And it's not a sort of coup in classical sense because of this 
uh, military officers, you know, uh, they have no connections with the political elites in Turkey. Uh, so for me, military, purely military uprising. But the thing that I am trying to emphasize for Ankara, Ankara strategic thinking, the allies, the political decision makers in the states, they did not take this issue very seriously. For Turkey, for Ankara, the coup, I mean, this coup attempt or this military uprising was an existential uh, threat, uh, both to the uh, state security and state apparatus in Turkey, because those guys, you know, uh, some of them, uh, you know, were linked to uh, Gulenist or FETO, we call them FETO, FETO, Fethullah Gulen terrorist organization. They tried to hijack the state apparatus with this military uprising. They attempted to hijack the state apparatus. And also, they tried to impose their militarized, uh, pseudo-utopist religious vision, uh, the Gulenist vision, over the society in Turkey. So uh, that's why this was not uh, a classical coup attempt that we witnessed in 1960s, in 1980s in Turkey. So uh, this was an existential, existential threat uh, to uh, both to sec uh, state apparatus and to, to the society in Turkey. I think uh, this uh, issue has not been fully uh, understood by the uh, allies, uh, particularly by the United States. So this creates a sort of deep uh, confidence problem or deep, uh, very deep rift between Turkey and uh, the United States. And Russia is uh, the player, I think, trying to exploit it. It is getting increasingly lift, uh, rift between the uh, Western security bloc and uh, Turkey, I think. But for me, right now, Russia has been trying to uh, exploit Turkey's, uh, Turkey's um, search for a new sort of uh, security uh, block right. to, uh, to, to get through this uh, uh, confidence problem, this confidence problem. I think uh, this is the issue. I think right now Ankara has been trying to uh, uh, feel, and also this will be the file, uh, Tillerson's briefcase, you know, uh, the Turkish relationship between uh, with, with, with the Russia. And Ankara, as I said before, as having deep mistrust in traditional Western alliance, seeks to institutionalize, I would say, its uh, pop-up alliance, I would say, with Russia. But uh, as I said before, we should not uh, forget that Moscow, I think, uh, wants to change Turkey's traditional geopolitical or NATO-centric geopolitical and traditionally set European Union centric geoeconomic orientations to get uh, both European Union and NATO into a crisis marked by an uncertain outcome. I think this is the answer to the question why Moscow is so eager to maintain strategic relationship between uh, with Turkey despite all this uh, confidence uh, crisis or deep crisis uh, that we witness, for instance, such as the downing of Russian check in uh, November 2015, right. and recently the killing of Russian uh, ambassador uh, Andrei Karlov in uh, late December 2016 by a Turkish 
policemen. Uh, so these were the deep, uh, you know, crisis. Despite uh, those uh, crises, uh, this is, I think, answer why Moscow tried to maintain its uh, relationship between Turkey. That's a great so, point. Yeah. So, so I mean, uh, in Tillerson's visit, you know, how he will uh, address this issue? Is he gonna, you know, uh, try to, uh, try to war Turkey with this increasingly uh, visible uh, relationship between Russia? Or if yes try to warn Turkey not to uh, unchain itself from the Western security bloc. Bill Tillerson reminds this uh, gently or rudely. That's a great, that's a great point. So uh, also that kind of goes along with that, you know, Turkey currently has issues with Germany. They, they accuse them uh, of supporting the Gulenists on uh, the most recent cool, uh, coup. So how do you see the relationship with NATO going forward? Will the Tillerson visit have any impact on the uh, future relationship between Turkey and NATO as well? So uh, this uh, deep uh, confidence problem with Western security bloc after the uh, getting increasingly visible after the July 15 military uprising, I think uh, there had been uh, the, the, there was a friction between Turkey and NATO. Uh, before the uh, July 15 uh, military uprising, particularly over uh, Syria issue. Not, uh, Turkey wants to uh, create a sort of de design uh, coordinated and managed by NATO in the fight against ISIS. But I would say that NATO has dragged its feet on the issue. NATO did not want to directly involve women uh, involved in the uh, anti, uh, you know, ISIS coalition. I think I also have to criticize NATO, you know, on, on this issue. This uh, should be a sort of NATO-initiated uh, action, uh, but NATO uh, did not want to uh, carry the uh, heavy lifting, I would say, in the fight against ISIS. So after the July 15 event, I think, uh, Ankara's strategic thinking is this, NATO did not or has not still responded uh, very responsibly uh, to this existential threat, as I said uh, before. So right now, uh, NATO, for Ankara, NATO has been uh, playing blind and deep on still uh, this July 15 uh, military uprising. And uh, that's why Ankara has been trying to uh, warn NATO uh, to, how can I say, to react much more properly uh, as an, uh, to, to Turkey's only security uh, block. Uh, but as I said before, as I said before, I think because of Russia's direct involvement uh, uh, to the game, I think uh, it will be a little bit harder for Ankara uh, to, uh, to get a sort of a new uh, initiative uh, with uh, NATO. Right. So do you think this will come up in the upcoming NATO summit as well? Do you think the, the issue of Turkish relations within NATO uh, will be a big part of the summit by chance? I, 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 uh, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And uh, Turkey's, uh, what Turkey is going to say and how Turkey is going to behave will be an important uh, issue in the forthcoming NATO summit, I think.
so do you think there's a chance they may resolve some of these issues and, and uh, sort of counter the Russian uh, attempts to have a divisive influence between uh, Turkey and NATO and Turkey and the West? That's right. Uh, that's right. But um, as I said before, sir, I mean, uh, what right now? Uh, I mean, this is an important question for me. Uh, I mean, how Turkey uh, and U.S. in particular and how Turkey and NATO as an Western security bloc in general uh, will try to resolve these, uh, you know, uh, issues in a sort of uh, structural in a sort of institutional setting is an important issue. You know, we, what we see at hand is, uh, you know, right now we are not talking about daily crisis. We are not talking about uh, daily uh, crisis. So I think uh, what we lack is a sort of joint mechanism to manage and to coordinate, you know, this new paradigm, you know, driven by uncertainty unpredictability and actions on the ground rather than words. So if we can establish, you know, a new institutional mechanism to manage this existing uncertainty and unpredictability uh, by taking the strategic relationship between Turkey and the United States and in, in particular and Turkey and the NATO in general, I think we could get through this in a much more uh, effective way. But uh, what I try to say is, is that we still have no institutional mechanism to get through this uh, uh, deep uh, confidence uh, crisis. Okay. Um, and my last question for you would be, you know, the sort of the future of the Turkish military, it's sort of you know, the perception in the West and America is it's sort of been degraded ever since uh, President Erdogan had taken uh, over. Um, and then especially in the wake of the coup, what, what do you see as far as the future of the Turkish military and, and security in Turkey? I mean, uh, the first uh, thing that I'm trying to say in the domain of state apparatus, you know, the July 15 military uprising, has revealed a significant difference between the reality of state uh, in, in Turkey and also its rhetoric. You know, if you look at the rhetoric of state in Turkey, we see a sort of strong state uh, tradition and strong state discourse, uh, continuously narrated by the state elites. But uh, the reality of state, uh, the traumatic institutional trauma uh, that we witness, uh, uh, forced us, uh, the ones living in Turkey, to think that the state in Turkey uh, could be easily hijacked by, out, supervised or inspired by the U.S.-based cleric Fethullah Gülen. So the question at hand is, in general, uh, that we are trying to answer, how can we prevent the occurrence of another July 15 that will dare to hijack the state apparatus? And how can we design the security sector in Turkey, including the Turkish military, the intelligence uh, agency, uh, the Gendarmeria Command, the national police, uh, also including you know, those private uh, security sector and also even those pre pre uh, paramilitary, uh, you know, units, uh, village guards currently fighting against PKK in the uh, southeastern Turkey. So right now, uh, 
it's an important point. Uh, the, the, there are two important points. The first fact, the first fact that the July 15 event and the mass purges and the uh, military reforms after July 15 has changed the nature of civil-military relations in Turkey. But what we see right now is I define as an revolutionary civilianization. In the civil-military relations literature, we have a tested assumption. Civilianization is the first step directly lead to the democratization. And I think Turkey will be a good test case, you know, to test this uh, validity of this argument. We Revolutionary civilization in Turkey lead to democratization because, for me, civilization is the transfer of power from military elites to the civilian elites, and that's it. The democratization, the second phase, is the diffuse or distribution of power, you know, from military elites to those, you know, uh, civilian actors, such as the elected president in the Turkish case, elected government, parliamentary opposition parties, even those actors within the civil society, such as uh, academia, you know, in Turkey, think tanks, media, and those other NGOs. Uh, so what we need in Turkey is a democratization of civil-military relations, meaning the distribution of power, uh, so as not to witness another July 15 event. And uh, unfortunately, this is not the case. At, at the moment, because, you know, we don't have uh, enough uh, oversight and monitoring mechanisms, uh, and we couldn't uh, establish that. And uh, another important imp impact of Ju July 15 military uprising and the mass purges following it, uh, Turkish military's institutional identity. So we see a sort of transition from the monolithic or single identity to a polylithic or uh, a sort of composed of many but separated micro-identities within the military, with the weakening of the post of chief of general staff. So, uh, uh, I mean, this creates a sort of paradigm shift within the Turkish military's uh, strategy uh, culture and also uh, will lead uh, to, an, an uh, how can I say, uh, a sort of friction within the military among those uh, different uh, groups uh, in terms of their stance toward, towards change and transformation, for instance. We have symbionts, we have reformists, and we have uh, prostatistically oriented officers, military elites at the moment. And in terms of their uh, worldview or political affiliation, we see the multiple uh, groups of military elites, such as those conservatives, uh, Eurasianists with a sort of non-aligned or pro-Russia sentiment, and with a sort of anti-US and anti-West sentiment uh, and leftist, you know, affiliations. And also we have Atlanticists still try to maintain the strategic relationship between the Turkish security apparatus and the Western bloc. And also we have those neo-national within the military, you know, uh, trying to, uh, how can I say, uh, trying to uh, blend with that uh, non-aligned position uh, with a sort of isolationist and with a sort of nationalist uh, worldview. 
So uh, this transition from monolithic identity to the political, I mean, polylithic one, composed of many but uh, separated micro-identities, is another challenge I think the Turkish military has to tackle uh, in years to And also because of this mass purchase, we see a sort of, uh, how can I say, intellectual capital problem within the Turkish military to uh, maintain its transformation. Uh, right now, uh, many Western uh, educated uh, military uh, officers uh, right now uh, uh, serving in the Turkish general staff, the high commands uh, in Ankara, right now uh, they have been purged. And uh, what I try to say is the intellectual capital deficiency uh, because of their uh, purges, uh, the Turkish military has been trying to uh, tackle it. This is an important uh, dynamic. And also some risk factors faced in the post-July 15 setting in the domains of uh, Turkish civil military relations and the military. Uh, first one is the absence of constructive scholarly debate moving Turkish civil military relations to the level of president military relations. Right now we have palace, uh, President Erdogan, uh, representing uh, the whole uh, executive power, I would say, uh, and uh, we see the narrowing of CMR, Turkey CMR, to the level of president military relations, and uh, this is the case at the moment. And the uh, argument of those uh, supporting this, uh, you know, uh, approach is this: they are saying that what we need in Turkey uh, after July 15 setting, we need a sort of very strict, very firm civilian control over the military. But this civilian control, as I said before, does not necessarily mean democratic control, and also will, at the end of the day, degrade the effectiveness and efficiency of the military, the extreme level of civilian control or extreme level of civilization. So this is the first risk factor Turkey has to manage. The second one, low levels of civilian intellectual capital on security issues and military transformation, which is the case, still the case, setting. And the third risk factor, the Turkish military, you know, uh, 2017 is a tough year for Turkey. It's an election year. And we have an upcoming referendum in uh, April, July 16, as you know. And we see militaries, Turkish militaries becoming the primary domain of popular and political debates between the conservatives and seculars uh, in polarized social political context in Turkey. This is not good. The military is becoming primary domain of the popular and political debates. It's, 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 it, this, this is not a uh, good trend. And uh, the other risk factor that we have to manage in the post-July 15 setting is the friction between the civilian elites and the military elites over the causes, scale, and tempo of the military reforms after July 15, shaping the nature of civil-military relations, as I said before. And another uh, friction I try to explain, uh, if you remember, the friction among those military elites with differentiating worldviews regarding the military's new institutional identity, the role of Islam within the state and society, and also even within the military. You know, the uh, right now, headscarf ban, for instance, uh, lifted by the civilian uh, elites uh, four weeks ago. And the impact of this uh, Lifting headscarf bar. Right now, we see uh, Turkish uh, female officers with headscarf 
And to what extent the strategic culture of Turkish military is ready for that? I think the civilian elites should ask this question very seriously. And also, uh, another important question within the military elites NATO sentiment, uh, pro anti NATO stance, and uh, to maintain to be a part of Western security bloc or going for a non aligned position in the construction of this new identity for the military. I think these are the important risk factors that should be managed very delicately in the post-July 15 setting, but unfortunately, so far, I would say that we are not doing very well to manage those risk factors. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.